Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone. How are you? So excited to be here. We have a great show for you today. But before I start, make sure that you do like this stream, share, give it a thumbs up, subscribe if you don't already subscribe. Also, if you can support the Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So we're going to be talking with Youssef Munayer, who is a Palestinian-American analyst and head of the Israel-Palestine program at the Arab Center of Washington, D.C. So Youssef, welcome. Hi there, Katie. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks so much for joining. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. Actually, the reason I want to have you on initially was I was at one of the protests. I think I was at the protest at Grand Central Station that shut down Grand Central Station, and I was streaming on Instagram, and someone wrote to me because I, was, I, I caught some of the projections that they were doing on the building across the street. And one of those projections was from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And I was streaming that and someone texts me like, really? You're, st- you're streaming calls for genocide? And I was with my friend and I was like, what do I even say to this? He goes, oh, send him Yusef Munayer's piece on that. And I went to Jewish Currents and I found your piece and I did send it to him. But I had wanted to have you on to talk about that. And then of course, That slogan is even more newsworthy because, as people know, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib was censured over that phrase. So can you tell us what that phrase really means and its significance and relevance in this moment? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's crazy that we are even talking about a protest slogan at a time where there are thousands of people who've been killed in the Israeli bombardment on Gaza. But it's not unrelated. And that's sort of the departure point that I will, I will take to kind of explain this. When I wrote that piece for Jewish Currents, it was in 2021. And it was in relation to some of the events that took place in May of that year, where we saw Israel attempting to force Palestinians out of their homes in Jerusalem, which coincided as well with Israeli police raids on the Haram al-Sharif and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. During Laylatul Qadr, one of the the holiest nights of the the month of Ramadan, which really set off a mobilization across the entirety of the land, the land that exists between the river of Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, the land which we Palestinians call home, and the land that we call Palestine. And obviously other people have different names for this land, but for us, this is Palestine and this is where we are from. And, you know, I think that moment, not just represented, but was the single largest national mobilization of Palestinians since 1936, where you had all of the different communities within Palestine, whether they were Palestinians living under occupation in the West Bank or in Jerusalem or Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinians living under occupation and siege in Gaza, All of them were responding to this moment. 
And this idea of from the river to the sea, not just represents a geographic space, but it represents a response to policies of fragmentation that have sought to divide Palestinians into these different, you know, smaller, weaker cantons so that they cannot push back against the policies of Zionism, which, which do this to them. And so 2021, the May of 2021, really represented a moment of national unity among Palestinians, not just in word, but also in action, which is something that made it, I think, so important. And we heard then this slogan, demonized, as a call to genocide or what have you. And I wanted to explain the reality is that this is a call for freedom. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is this demonization of protest slogans is actually not unique to Palestine, not unique to Palestine activism. There's a a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, one of the ones that it reminded me of is sort of the response to Black Lives Matter, you know, and we heard as that protest chant really captivated a movement that was calling for racial justice in this country, people who zeroed in on the slogan as a way to demonize and delegitimize the people who were calling for racial justice. And they said, well, what do you mean black lives matter? What about white lives? Are you saying white lives don't matter? Why not all lives matter? And on one end of the spectrum, you had people who were just kind of like ignorant about it. And on the other hand, you had people who were deliberately malicious and you know wanted to impugn the motives of a movement calling for racial justice by saying that they were actually secretly out for white genocide, right? And so we see these things kind of play out in different places. The reality is from the river to the sea, Palestine is not free today. Palestinians are not free today. From the river to the sea today, there is an Israeli state. That Israeli state controls effectively the entirety of the territory and treats people differently based on who they are. That's the fundamental problem. And this call for freedom responds to that one state reality of apartheid by saying freedom is what we need. And it is the Palestinians in Palestine who are not free. And that's what has to change. And so it shouldn't surprise us that a call that focuses on freedom, that focuses on the rights of people, and that unifies Palestinians is one that is demonized by supporters of Israel and supporters of Israel's apartheid policies, because it threatens those very unjust policies in a direct way. It doesn't threaten the existence of Jews in the land. It threatens the existence of a system of injustice, just as South Africa today continues to exist without apartheid. Israelis and Palestinians can continue to exist without a system of apartheid. What we call for is an end to that system of injustice. And so, you know, this is what that slogan is about. Another irony is that from the river to the sea idea is already incorporated by the Israeli government. So if it's a genocidal cry, which Israel defenders claim, then Israel is also based on a genocidal cry. And it's more than a cry. It's in the Likud charter, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's political party. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, and again, this is this is one of the, the sort of like searing 
hypocrisies of, of, of all of us. There seems to be a lot of people who are more outraged at, at the protest chant of activists calling for, for freedom and justice than they are about the actual policies that animate a state uh, with the power to actually create those outcomes on the ground uh, and which has been creating those outcomes on the ground for decades by denying Palestinians freedom across the entirety of the territory. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's hard to take these concerns seriously. And honestly, you know, it does really a disservice uh, to, uh, to a, a very legitimate cause of trying to combat anti-Semitism uh, by trying to say that Palestinians who are calling for freedom and justice in their homeland uh, are actually, uh, you know, engaged in, in anti-Semitism because of that. It ends up using anti-Semitism and allegations of anti-Semitism as a way to perpetuate injustice. Uh, and, I, and, and I think this is one of the reasons, you know, people, people who see through this, uh, who understand what the Israeli government is doing, uh, are really turning away from, you know, this, uh, this sort of response. They, they see it as empty and they see it as counterproductive and in fact, dangerous uh, as well. And I think that um, uh, probably animated a lot of the attitudes of the people who were protesting in front of the uh, DNC uh, yesterday. And I know that that's something that you're going to be uh, covering in this program as well. Thank you for that. I actually wanted to read part of the Likud charter, which people who criticize this protest cry seem to not have any problem with. It says... Likud Charter, the right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. The right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is eternal and indisputable and is linked with the right to security and peace. Therefore, Judea and Samaria will not be handed to any foreign administration between the sea and the Jordan. There will only be Israeli sovereignty. A plan which relinquishes parts of Western Eretz Israel undermines our right to the country, unavoidably leads to the establishment of a Palestinian state, jeopardizes the security of the Jewish population, endangers the existence of the state of Israel, and frustrates any prospect of peace. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's important to point out, this is the original Likud Charter, and it was updated during the sort of uh, peace process era, just to be more clear about this. And the language that they chose to use was that uh, the government of Israel flatly rejects the creation of a Palestinian state east of the Jordan River. So in case there was any doubt what the sort of Likud party's vision uh, for the river to the sea is, it's a vision of apartheid. They are not saying uh, from the river to the sea, everybody will have equal rights. They are not saying from the river to the sea, we'll have a binational state. They're saying from the river to the sea, there will only be Israeli sovereignty, and we do not intend to extend equal rights to Palestinians who live there. Um, yet it's Palestinians who call for freedom uh, who are uh, accused of having genocidal intentions. You know, it would be laughable if it wasn't so dangerous, and it really is. Well, another thing that Israel opposes, besides Palestinian statehood, which they make very clear, is... BDS, Boycott, Divest, Sanction. Can you talk about how the state of Israel, the government of Israel and its various ministries have combated BDS? Yeah, this is a really great question and I appreciate it. You know, I think one thing as we as we start to understand this uh, that's important for us to grasp is that, you know, the, the state of Israel was had actually become quite comfortable um, 
fighting armed resistance or terrorism or whatever one wants to call it. Um, the, the challenge that they had uh, was, as one Israeli general said, uh, we don't do Gandhi well. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Um, it, it's, it's easy for Israel to uh, claim sort of legitimacy for its policies when it can demonstrate that it's under security threat. And of course, that's much easier to do when the challenge is coming in the form of arms. Um, but when it's coming in the form of nonviolent dissent, uh, which is what boycotts, divestment, and, and sanctions are, um, it's a lot harder to defend Israel's policies. Um, and so they came to realize this over time and decided that they needed different approaches to deal with dissent and global civil society around Israel's policies. Uh, and they did this in a number of different ways. Um, uh, they tried to do it through sort of propaganda uh, and, you know, investment in sort of the uh, Israeli foreign ministry uh, to try to bring people to Israel and send them on propaganda tours and what have you. Um, but then, you know, in the early 2010s, they sort of started to realize that that wasn't working. Uh, that trying to defend Israel's policies against nonviolent dissent wasn't effective because it's hard to sell apartheid in the 21st century. And so they decided instead of trying to defend their policies, they needed to go on the attack against dissenters. Uh, and this was a conscious Israeli government decision that became enacted through the establishment of something called the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs in 2015, which was given uh, a mandate in October of that year uh, by the security cabinet in Israel uh, to um, uh, combat boycott, divestment, and sanctions activism um, wherever it existed in the world. Uh, and they did that in a number of different ways, uh, including through um, uh, overt means, but also through covert means, some of which we still don't know about because they are um, uh, they, they, they remain state secrets. Um, but much of it we have learned a lot about. And one of the ways that they did this was by partnering with like-minded organizations around the world in the United States and Europe to pursue some very specific objectives, including passing anti-BDS legislation um, and uh, also uh, engaging in lawfare and smear campaigns to target dissenters in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere. Um, and one of the sort of key components of these campaigns uh, was to try to smear nonviolent activism as something that was inherently violent. Uh, and so they tried to connect it to terrorism and they tried to connect it to anti-Semitism. And so they, they realized that, you know, when they went about this, for example, through anti-BDS legislation, they ran into something called the First Amendment. Uh, and they realized that the First Amendment was a problem because um, political speech is protected uh, and you cannot direct law enforcement against political speech because we have these constitutional rights. Uh, and similar things exist uh, in, in, in Europe uh, as well, even though they're, they're not uh, always as, as robust as, as the First Amendment here in the United States. And so they decided that there has to be a way to do this by circumventing the First Amendment. Uh, and the, the way they went about this is by shifting uh, to making this a conversation about anti-Semitism. 
because discrimination is not something that is protected by the First Amendment. And so if you can cast nonviolent dissent for Palestinian rights as anti-Semitism, you can then hijack uh, the law enforcement apparatus of, of the state and direct it against the dissenters that you want to target. And so there has been this major effort uh, in the last several years to redefine anti-Semitism in a way that includes Palestinian expressions for freedom, uh, that includes calls for Palestinian refugees to return to their homes, that includes Palestinian calls for equal rights, uh, anything that challenges a Zionist interpretation uh, to justice uh, is considered anti-Semitism. And anything that opposes uh, Zionism is considered anti-Semitism. Um, and so, you know, we've seen, um, we've seen this effort develop over the last several years, and we are seeing it really now going into, into overdrive in this moment. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that's also important to point out is remarkably, and despite all of that, in a moment where we are seeing perhaps more intense repression targeting those who speak up for Palestine, we are seeing more people speaking up for the rights of Palestinians than ever. And so I think this really is a failed strategy. Uh, and more and more people are looking at it as sort of a, a, a desperate attempt to silence dissent uh, than uh, those that are, are really looking at it as some kind of good faith effort to combat uh, anti-Semitism or extremism. And what about what the ADL is doing and the Brandeis Center? Yeah, I mean, these are two organizations that have cooperated with the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs. They've participated in convenings put together by this ministry. You know, there's a long trail of evidence of this, but they have long sought to try to use existing U.S. state law to target dissenters in the United States against Israeli policy. Um, they've uh, sought to do this by trying to stretch uh, anti-terrorism law to apply it to BDS. Uh, they've done it by trying to uh, stretch anti-discrimination law uh, uh, by tying it to, to BDS through claims uh, of anti-Semitism. And now we're hearing the, um, you know, the Anti-Defamation League um, and the uh, Brandeis Center for uh, Human Rights uh, Policy. I'm, I'm not sure what the exact uh, name is, but organizations that purport to be human rights organizations and civil liberties defenders calling for mass terrorism investigations of college students. I mean, it's, it's again, it, it would be laughable if it wasn't so dangerous. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, it's, it's, it's really despicable and a desperate effort to try to catch a ship that's already sailed, to be honest with you. Yeah, and of course, the ADL now considers students for, uh, just, for justice in Palestine, a hate group, and Jewish Voice for Peace. A hate group. So we should know that when the ADL talk about trivializing anti-Semitism, when they talk about an increase in anti-Semitism and a certain number of incidents, I don't take them seriously at all. Because for the ADL, a major act of anti-Semitism would be a protest calling for a ceasefire organized by Jewish Voice for Peace. Well, and, and, and people should look at the ADL's data. I mean, one thing I will give the ADL credit for is that you know, if you look hard enough, you can actually find what goes into their data. Uh, they don't put this out on the front, but if you want to go look, you can see that they count in their anti-Semitic incidents, um, uh, anti-Israel rallies. 
including rallies that are organized by Jewish groups. Um, so, you know, look, there is, um, there is an effort uh, within parts, significant parts of the establishment Jewish community to, to try to monopolize a definition of Jewish identity uh, and to, to make Jewish identity Zionist identity. Um, and while there has long been dominant strains of Zionist identity within Jewish communities for parts of the last century, there's always been non-Zionist and anti-Zionist strains as well. Um, and so I think the effort to do this is actually, you know, causing a lot of people to push back against these organizations, um, reject their efforts, uh, and also call into question uh, what sort of commitments they really have to justice and to combating, uh, you know, any form of bigotry. It's also an anti-Semitic trope, which is so ironic, because this idea that all Jews are a monolith who support Israel is something that raging anti-Semites put forward, and then APAC, the ADL, and the government of Israel put forward. Yeah, I mean, no community is a monolith. Um, you know, no, no community, all things alike. Um, and the idea that they uh, should or should be expected to, I think, is preposterous. And again, goes against the, the values of anybody who is genuinely fighting against any form of, of bigotry. And for lots of Jews, that's part of their identity. Including Jews who live in Israel, by the way. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of anti-Zionist Jews who live in Israel. I wouldn't say they represent the majority of Jews who live in Israel, but even Israel understands, the government of Israel understands that there are anti-Zionist communities within, uh, within Israel. Uh, and, of course, the largest anti-Zionist community within Israel are Palestinians, of which there are, are millions. And so, again, all of this is sort of, I think it's actually aimed at a couple of things. One, it is a response to divisions within the American Jewish community over Israel policy. Uh, and it's an attempt to kind of uh, discipline and corral the American Jewish community in, in, a, in a singular direction. Um, uh, and that is a, a response to many people increasingly questioning what Israel is doing to the Palestinians over the last 20 years or so, including within the Jewish community. Um, but it's also an effort to try to silence Palestinians. Let's be clear. Um, you know, if you are saying uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the only people who are really allowed to be part of respectable discourse are Zionists, then you are telling Palestinians either you negate your own existence by adopting Zionism, uh, uh, or you can't be part of, of any conversation about what should happen with you. Um, and I think that's just that's 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 a fundamentally racist sort of position to take. And it's one that these groups take unapologetically uh, while claiming to also combat bigotry. It's bonkers. Yeah. Something else that you tweeted out that I wanted to share is the following. So Ahmed tweeted, Germany's Bundestag will discuss Friday a draft law that would make commitment to Israel's right to exist a requirement for citizenship. The state that recently ethnically cleansed an entire people based on their identity will make it law to be committed to protecting a state where the offspring of the people Germany genocided are committing their own genocide and ethnically cleansing an entire people based on their ethnicity. And as you pointed out, Youssef, in your tweet, this is not even a requirement in the state of Israel. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I first saw this and first, like, we have to understand that, you know, this is just the most recent step in a series of 
batshit insane steps that the German government has been taking in recent years in relation to this this issue, uh, really more than any other country uh, in Europe. And we can we can have a whole episode just on that. Um, but when I first saw this news, I thought to myself, wow, you know, like Germany's not even asking for German citizens to acknowledge Germany's right to exist as a condition of citizenship. And then I realized Israel doesn't even require its citizens to acknowledge Israel's right to exist as a condition of, of citizenship. So why is Germany doing it? And, you know, I think one thing people miss is that, you know, these efforts to quote unquote combat anti-Semitism by targeting and silencing Palestinians uh, are things that far right European movements are gravitating to because they're seeing them as opportunities to do away and target immigrant communities within Europe under the guise of combating anti-Semitism. And so in Germany, of course, this is something that is going to target a lot of immigrant communities, a lot of refugee communities, and it's going to be sold as a way to combat anti-Semitism. But really, it's, it's, the, it's the wildest sort of wet dream of far-right fascists in Germany, you know, cloaked in pro-Israel language. So, you know, it's wild uh, because it's been trending this way in Germany for, for some time. But I think that, you know, people of conscience should recognize it for what it is. And it's certainly not an effort to combat anti-Semitism. And we've seen a lot of far-right leaders championing Israel and pretending to be opponents of anti-Semitism. And that's because Israel has provided a model uh, that a lot of uh, uh, far-right movements uh, appreciate. Uh, they see a model of a ethno-majoritarian state and say, we want to be like that. Um, and, uh, you know, here you have uh, an ethno-majoritarian state that is disregarding what the world says about human rights and international law and treatment of minorities. And for far-right parties in Europe, this is the goal. This is the ideal. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the right-wing Israeli government under Netanyahu and basically every government in Israel for the last, you know, 15 years or so has been a right-wing government under Netanyahu with few exceptions, um, has built very strong ties with right-wing parties in Europe. Um, precisely because it represents this model that they wish to emulate. And not just in Europe. We see it in Israel's relations uh, with, uh, with India. We see it with Israel's relations with countries throughout Africa. Um, you know, it is uh, supplying not just the model, but also the resources and the weapons uh, for uh, far-right movements uh, to dominate political control in their, in their, own, in their own spaces. And at the same time, it's uh, trying to maintain a relationship with, you know, uh, Western liberal states that say they oppose these very things uh, and pretending to be sort of a, uh, you know, uh, a beacon of, uh, of democracy or freedom or, or, or what have you. I mean, it, it's something that collapses under the least bit of, of, of scrutiny. Um, and yet um, the leaders of the free world uh, are willing to play along. And I think, honestly, they do so at, at their own risk and at their own peril, because more and more people around the world are seeing this blatant hypocrisy, and they don't want to stand for it. 
firmware rights. When have you ever heard the phrase the Palestinian state has a right to exist? Which I know is something that we wanted to speak to, Youssef. You want to talk about the phrase of Israel's right to exist. And then another question or comment that relates to something else we want to talk in our remaining time is three sides to every story. But looking at the region, I only see one state where both Arabs and Israelis are actually living together peacefully in any significant numbers. So let's talk about that phrase, Israel's right to exist, what it means, where the Palestinian right to exist is, and then we can talk about what a one-state future. Yeah. No, I appreciate that question. You know, one of the things when we've been hearing sort of this discussion in recent days and weeks about from the river to the sea is a lot of people saying, well, why can't you imagine how Jewish people hear that phrase? And I understand people can hear that phrase to mean different things. And I ask, like, do people ever wonder how Palestinians hear certain phrases that are thrown around about this situation? Uh, Things that we hear repeated ad nauseum by elected officials over and the media over and over and over again. Uh, When when Palestinians hear things like Israel has the right to exist, what what do you think that that means to us? Uh, For us, and, and, and in reality, the state of Israel came into existence through the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And the existence of Israel is fundamentally tied to that historic reality. So when you say Israel has the right to exist, you are saying that Israel has the right to ethnically cleanse Palestinians and to continue denying them rights in their homeland. And I don't see anybody getting exercised about that. I don't see anybody saying that this is language that is outside the bounds of polite discussion and in fact should criminalize people or have them censured in Congress. No, actually it becomes becomes the very barrier for entry into discussion instead. And so, you know, I think these things need to be investigated um, critically. And uh, look, the, the, the fundamental problem with the Western perspective into this issue, and it predates sort of the the U.S. leadership on this issue and goes back to the British mandate. The West has always seen the Jewish people as a people. Um, and, you know, for many years in Europe, they saw them as a people that they didn't want in Europe. Um, but they never saw the Palestinians as a people. Uh, they saw them as sort of part of an amorphous blob of Arabs that could just go live somewhere else. Um, and that fundamental denial of Palestinian rights to self-determination, that fundamental denial of a Palestinian connection to this space has animated Western perspectives and policy for the last century. Um, And we see it in this double standard around the way that people talk about what Palestinians are allowed to say and aspire to, and what is sort of the the norm in our discourse, which uh, is obviously something that causes great pain and offense to Palestinian ears. That's such an important point, because It would be one thing if the people who are saying this is causing Jewish pain or this is triggering, if those people paid any attention whatsoever to what was causing Palestinian pain. But these same people are saying things like suggesting that all Palestinian civilians are like Nazis, right, as a Republican member of Congress said, from the floor. They're saying things like Palestine needs to be turned into a parking lot, flattened, which is something another Republican member of Congress said. This weaponization of trauma to justify causing other people trauma is so disgusting and disingenuous. As you said, you know, you get Rashida Tlaib gets in trouble for this, but the people who are actually supporting genocide don't. But that's interesting what you said, because I have to say, I always heard like Israel's right 
to self-defense. What I always thought about it was like how dangerous it is because it can be invoked to justify anything. Obviously, bombing a hospital is not self-defense. But I never honestly thought, and this probably is because I'm not Palestinian, like I never realized how, I knew it was dangerous, but I never realized how insensitive a term it is when it's, as you just pointed out, it's very right to existence was predicated on the right to ethnically cleanse and kill and exile people. Yeah. And I think, look, it's worth expanding on this point a little bit. Um, First, you know, the idea that states have a right to exist. I don't know where that comes from. States don't have rights. People do. And the states have obligations towards people and maintaining their rights. And the legitimacy of states comes from the extent to which they respect the rights of the people that they have obligations to. And so, you know, I, I don't think, you know, Palestine has a right to exist. I don't think Israel has a right to exist. America has a right to exist. This, this idea is just contrived out of, out of nowhere. The question is, how do these states respect the rights of the people that they have obligations to? And that is what is at the, at, at, at the fundamental base of this, this question of legitimacy that Israel faces. So this is one piece. The second piece that I would say is when it comes to sort of what Zionists say is, is unacceptable when it comes to, you know, uh, is, it's, it's not about, it's transparently not about genocide or anything like that. And the best example is that when Palestinian citizens of Israel proposed a law in the Israeli Knesset, To make Israel a state of all its citizens, it was deemed too radical to even be debated in the Knesset, and the Supreme Court agreed with the Knesset's decision to prevent this bill from even being discussed. So what Israel defines as an existential threat is equality. It's not an existential threat to Jewish existence within the land. It's equality with Palestinians. And so even when we call for equality, we are being told that we seek to destroy people. And so, you know, it's, it becomes really nonsensical, the kind of stuff that we're asked to kind of respond to and, and deal with. We're going to have to have you back on to, to discuss this in more detail. But the future of a one state, as you've pointed out, it is one state right now, but it's not a democracy. It is one state. It's been for a really long time. Um, you know, I, I, I recently contributed to, if, if readers are, are interested in reading more deeply on this issue, and I suggest they do a, a, a book called The One State Reality, um, uh, something that I contributed a chapter to, and there are many very thoughtful chapters in that book uh, discussing sort of the, the, the place we are in today, which is this one state reality, where one state controls the land between the river and the sea and the people there. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I hope that the war uh, on the on Palestinians in Gaza ends immediately. Um, but whenever it does, I think we're going to be deeper in that one state reality, not further away from it. Um, and I have long thought that Israelis and Palestinians um, are destined to live with each other. Uh, and people may not like that on both sides. Uh, there may be some who may not want that. Uh, we can all perhaps agree to blame it on the British. It doesn't really matter. But at the end of the day, we are going to have to find rules under which uh, we can all live together in this place between the river and the sea in peace. Um, And I think that the way that you do that is through democracy and through equal rights and equality before the law. Um, And I think that um, those kinds of principles um, reduce conflict all over the world when they're actually implemented. And there's no reason that they um, should not be 
uh, tried uh, between Israelis and uh, and Palestinians. Um, so that's you know that's been my view. I've written extensively on this. I there's if folks want to um, check out a piece in Foreign Affairs on this as well, where I expand on it. I know we're not going to be able to cover it all in in a couple of minutes, but that's the gist. You yourself come from Palestine. Do you still have family there? And is any family member in Gaza? Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, I, my my family survived the ethnic cleansing in 1948. So I was actually part of the the small community of Palestinians that remained inside what became Israel. So we became Palestinian citizens of Israel. But because of that experience, we have family members across the land between the river and the sea and also outside of it as well, uh, who all became refugees. We've got family in Gaza. We've got family a- across what is today Israel we have family in the West Bank, um, so there there isn't an inch of this space that um, you know we don't we don't have uh, people that are um, that are connected to it. Yeah, and everyone I know who has family in Gaza has lost people. Yeah, it's incredibly sad, and the most urgent thing right now is to 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 bring an end to this this attack, to bring an end to this bombardment. And it's, it's going to take years for people, if they ever recover from what they survived in Gaza. And what do you think Americans can do to help stop this war? Well, you know, I've seen opinion polls in the last several days that have showed that, you know, a significant majority of Americans support a ceasefire. Um, that doesn't seem to be represented uh, by their elected representatives. Um, and I, I think that's a tragedy. Um, you know, it's a it's a tragedy not just for the people in Gaza, but also here in in the United States, uh, when you know we are are seeing mass atrocities taking place, uh, and people here in the United States speaking up about it and being ignored by their by their representatives. Um, I I think that's horrific, uh, and I think that people uh, of conscience should continue calling on their uh, officials uh, and demanding an end to this this horrific war. Well, thank you so much, Yusef. And where can people find you on Twitter and your writing in general? Probably Twitter is the best place, at Yusuf Munayer, my first name and last name. And you could find plenty of my writing at the Arab Center as well, arabcenterdc.org. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.